Well, good morning again, friends. My name is Rick Gleiman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Church, and I have the privilege with you together today to consider God's holy word. So I'm going to invite you to stand one more time as we read aloud together from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. God's word is living, it's active, and it is powerful. When we consider it, when we read it, when we think about it, when we meditate on it, and when we take it into our lives, it always produces positive results. So let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer that we can hear and understand what God is speaking, not to them, but what God is speaking to us in this place this morning. And also, please pray for me as I deliver the word. I didn't have much of a voice Friday. I had a little bit yesterday, and I think I might get through today, but with your prayers, I trust the Lord will help me to do so. Let's lift our hearts in prayer. Father, we stand, all of us, equally before you in Jesus Christ. You have allowed us to be in a position of amazing grace and your tremendous provision of salvation. We could not have earned this position to have access to your throne on our own, not a single one of us, but you've given it to us by giving us your Son. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the power in it. We pray that you'll help us to understand it to grasp it with both our minds and with our hearts this day. And may we be changed by it, and may we be more like you because of it. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We've been around this fall for our fall series. We're moving through a series called The Other Six, focused on what we do as Christ followers when we're not here in the church building on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening as some worship. But what do we do with those other six days of the week? The opening segment was being able to see the field that God has called us to enter into, to see the great harvest that's out there. The second week focused on us using our gifts and talents that God gave to us to benefit other people and so bring people to him. And last week, Pastor Pete talked about cherishing our children, how we can be a positive and profound influence in our children, our grandchildren, and the children of the world in which we live in. And I'm really excited about our topic for today, which is how each of us, every single one of us, has the opportunity and the privilege and responsibility to help people, people that we know, come to know Jesus through the lens of our lives, through our life stories, through the experiences, through the activities, through the ways in which we have encountered Jesus in our lives, to be able to share our stories with them as a part of that process of them coming to Jesus. Stories are important. Carol and I have three grandchildren now, two of which are six years old, little Caroline, and four years old, little Henry. Both of them love for us to read them books. Carol babysits often, and little Henry is like ricochet rabbit. He doesn't sit still for more than two seconds for anything, but when Carol will open a book and read a story, he'll sit there for 20 minutes. It's like a miracle. I can't believe it. When we babysit them at nighttime and I'm over there, we always do a Bible study with them. They look forward to her so excited, and I take a scripture, they pick it usually, and I'll 
dramatize the story for them and get their stuffed animals out, and they listen and they love it because everybody loves stories, don't we? Stories captivate us as we get older. We love to understand and hear about heroic efforts. We love to hear, even in movie format. Carol and I like to watch movies at night sometimes, and though we very seldom agree exactly on the movies we'll watch, to be honest with you, she's more the Hallmark stuff, I'm more the, you know, the more dramatic kind of stuff. But in any case, one kind of movie we both agree on all the time. It's sports movies about true stories, real people and real struggles, not made-up ones on Hollywood actually happened on a playing field. And one of those movies which we've enjoyed together is the movie called Miracle, which is the true account of our 1980 Olympic hockey team, which a bunch of college boys took on the professional adults of the Russian world champion hockey team in the Olympics and beat them on their way to winning the gold medal. They overcame insurmountable odds and yet achieved an amazing <clears throat> outcome. And that story inspires us, the suspense of it. One little caveat to this, whenever I see one of those sports movies, I figure they wouldn't have made a movie unless they win the championship, right? So you kind of know those things ahead of time. But today, we're going to consider together the vital importance of our stories, our personal experiences, because friends, each one of us, both has experienced a miracle in Christ, and we are living miracles because of God's work in our life. And I dare say more profound such miracles than what the Olympic hockey team did back in 1980 in the Olympics. You see, Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, as we call it, his mandate to each and every follower who would ever live, he said these words, and you probably could quote them without even looking at them, but here's what he said in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, <clears throat> go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Great missionary Hudson Taylor said this, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. To so many Christians, though, I think this sounds like the Great Commission, like a job for the apostles, or today for pastors and evangelists and vocational ministers, for them to do that. But as we're going to see today, that isn't exactly what Jesus had in mind. Elton Trueblood said it this way, evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but it's instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. So to approach this, we're going to look at this in three ways today. We're going to look first at the promise Jesus made about this message going from where it started in Jerusalem to reach the entire world. We're secondly to look at his plan for accomplishing that was to reach every person who would ever live on the planet through each of us, which today includes you and I. And then thirdly, we're going to talk a great deal about our preparation, how we can be prepared to be those ambassadors that Jesus has called us to be. So let's take a look at that promise. He promised that the message that he was giving to his disciples, the gospel message of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the promise of salvation would reach the whole globe. He further clarifies that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says these words to his apostles and disciples present. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the apostles and disciples at that time, with Jesus being resurrected, 
fully expected him to stick around, fully expected him to be with them now forever because he'd been raised from the dead. And Jesus is preparing them for his soon departure to send back to heaven. He says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you are going to be the ones who take my message, not just into your homes, not just into your villages, not just here in the big city of Jerusalem or to the borders of Israel. You're going to, and humans like you, are going to take the message across the entire globe. He made a very bold, and to those hearing the first time, unimaginable promise. They can't, they couldn't imagine. Most of them hadn't traveled more than 100 miles from their homes to the borders of Israel, maybe that far. And he says, you guys are going to do this, and I'm going to leave, and I'll send my Holy Spirit who will empower you to be sure but you're going to be the ambassadors who carry the message. Well, that was immediately fulfilled a few days after that on the day of Pentecost when the apostles were in the upper room and that Holy Spirit did come upon them, the 120 apostles and disciples who were there. And they went out in the street that day sharing their testimony and 3,000 people in one day were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That message has further been communicated and that promise has now been largely, if not completely, fulfilled. And today in our world, there's a gospel witness of Jesus Christ in every nation on this planet. What Jesus promised, he accomplished. We need to think about that we'll be amazed by the fact that we're part of something a lot bigger than we can grasp. You and I are in this church building today because somebody told somebody the message of Jesus along the way. It might have not been from a pulpit. It may not have been in a Sunday school class. It could be over a dinner table, over coffee someplace, but we're all here because the message has continued to spread exactly as Jesus proclaimed it. So what's the plan? What was Jesus' plan? Well, Jesus' plan was then and is now that the most important story that could ever be told, as it's called, the greatest story ever told, was going to be spread not by a religious institution or organization per se, but that each individual believer in Jesus sharing what they knew, their piece of that understanding and had experienced with Jesus was going to change people's understanding and help them take a step closer to Jesus. Cliff Nectel put it this way when he shared this brilliant thought. He said, a person's coming to Christ is like a chain with many links. There are many influences and conversations that precede a person's decision to convert to Christ. I know the joy <clears throat> of being the first link at times, a middle link usually, and occasionally the last link. God has not called me to be only the last link. Friends, our conversations, our influence, our sharing our stories might be one of those links and you never see the outcome. You might be at the very early stages of somebody's beginning to think about Jesus. Or you may be in the middle someplace, as most of us probably are, and maybe you're not up there at an altar where someone comes to Christ in that way or where a young child says, yes, I want to follow Jesus with their parents one night at home. But every one of our stories matters in that beautiful mosaic because people that are lost to God matter to him. All of them do. Many years ago, after I'd come to know Jesus and been radically converted, as I'll share later in, in our message, uh, just as a backdrop, our family went every year out to a little dude ranch out in Wickenburg, Arizona. Have you heard of Wickenburg, Arizona? Probably one, maybe one. Anyway, beautiful little dude ranch, housed about 30 people. We'd ride horses. And one of the things we did over that Christmas break going to New Year's, every New Year's Eve there was a, a big party at a different dude ranch, much bigger, more of a resort there in town. And so this whole group of 30 or so people would go over there and have your typical New Year's Eve party, which I'd participated in as a younger person many times. But 
now that I'd come to Christ, I was sort of saying, I, I don't think I should be partying like that. I don't, I'm just going to stay home in my room here, in the lodge here. And so everyone went off. Everyone's gone. I went to my room, had my Bible open. I'm literally on my knees praying to say, oh, Jesus, I'm just going to spend New Year's Eve with you. And the Holy Spirit gave me a vision of a woman over at that other, uh, the huge resort over there, sitting at a table by herself. And he said, Rick, get up and go over there. And I said, but Jesus, I said, I'm going to spend the night with you. I don't want to, I don't want to do so. Get up, get your shoes on, drive over there. Sure enough, I drive over there and walk into this big place, and I see this woman sitting there alone, looking very discouraged, very down, and exactly what I saw in the vision, and sat down and talked with her for two, two hours. The outcome of that was she was on the verge of taking her life. She was so depressed. But by the time everyone else was celebrating the new year around midnight, she was celebrating new life in Christ because she'd given her heart to Christ and was encouraged. Jesus cared about her. He knew exactly where she was and he wanted to reach her. It's nothing about me, it's about him loving people. So how do we get prepared for those God opportunities that I suspect he's creating for all of us and sometimes we don't always see them? How do we get to the point where we can actually have confidence that what we say matters and how we say it is going to make a difference. Well, I think what Peter's telling us, we'll talk more about this in a moment, is we need to prepare for that, prepare for those opportunities. One thing you should know about me as a young person, I was shy. I was relatively introverted. That's been cured quickly, and some of you can't get me to shut up sometimes. I realize that. I'm extremely extroverted now, but that wasn't me, the kind of person who would just go up to a perfect stranger and talk to them. Never would I do that. I was more reserved. I was more of a shy person. But the love of Christ transformed something in me that made that be more important than my own feelings. We're going to spend time now talking a little bit about what Peter said. Let's look closely again at 1 Peter 3.15. He says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And then this key phrase, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I want to highlight just a couple of those words. Always, all the time, be on your toes, ready to do what God might open up to you at a given moment. That means today. That means tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, at work, on the ball field someplace, at the, at the health club, at the doctor's office, when you're driving, if you're in a taxi, Always be prepared because we don't know when God's going to tap us on the shoulder and say, I want you to go talk to that person. They need to hear about me and they need to hear your piece of the puzzle, your experience with me. And he says, be prepared, be rehearsed, be practiced. I put a certain degree of rehearsal and practice into what I'm sharing with you today so that it'll make sense to you. Hopefully grasp something out of what I'm sharing today that'll be helpful to your life. And that's what he's saying about our story to be prepared, and we're gonna, I'm going to give you a template we can use to do that. And to do so in a way that makes sense, that's logical, that's intelligent. To an intelligent, educated world in which we live, we need to be understanding how they're seeing things and share our testimonies in ways that people will grasp. When we look back at Peter's time when he wrote these words, Christians, people that believed in Jesus like you and I, were experiencing tremendous persecution. In the Roman Empire, they were nailed to crosses. They were nailed to the walls of cities just for sport. They were dipped in, in oil. They were boiled in oil. They were lit and used as human torches. 
And they were even fed to the lions in the arena as sport. And the amazing thing that the outsiders saw was almost in every case, they were singing and praising God while experiencing horrendous persecution and torment, which prompted others, the outsiders, to say, come to the Christians who are still alive. How in the world can you people be happy and hopeful and grateful at, with what's going on to you? I pray that we can be in the world that we live in, those kind of hope-filled people, when there's political turmoil, when there's injustice of all kinds, when there's just seemingly chaos and confusion, that because of the hope that we have, people would ask us, how can you be happy? How can you be hopeful? How can you still be positive with all the negative stuff going on? And we'll be able to supply the answer. It's him. It's because we know a God who's able to supply all of our needs, who's given us his son, who loves us completely. When those doors present themselves to us, when people ask us that question, we want to see those and we want to seize them. Like I said, it's not preaching a 30-minute sermon to somebody. It might just be a one- or two-minute conversation where you share a word of encouragement of what God has done for your life. Peter gives us three guidelines here. First, he says it must be reasonable, as I mentioned, is thought through. It's got to make sense to a cynic. It's got to make sense to a critic or an unbeliever who doesn't have any orientation. Secondly, it's got to be gentle and considerate never talking down to somebody because they don't know the Bible or the doctrines or the creeds, but understand maybe they've just never been introduced to them and realize that God loves that person just as much as he loves you. They just don't know it yet. And that love is being held out to them through you. Timothy Keller put it this way, bad evangelism says, I'm right and you're wrong and I would love to tell you about it. That's not the goal here. Peter's teaching the exact opposite. But we must be respectful, treating each other, treating others with love and respect, which is, both of which are such a rare commodity in our world. Virtually every person you know and interact with this coming week, or many of them to be sure, want love. They want respect. They want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want somebody to look them in the eye and to see them as a real person. That's respecting them. And we have that privilege and that opportunity. But friends, our stories, if you understand this, your testimony of God's grace in your life is all firsthand. It's not saying so-and-so, I read a book about somebody over here, or I read about this great thing that happened, or so-and-so said this. This is your story. This is your experience, and that's where it becomes very credible and authentic. But I feel it's so sad to admit it that many church-going Christians today would not be able to explain very well why they believe in Jesus if they're asked the why question. As Christians, I believe we need to exert the energy mentally and emotionally and spiritually to actually get better prepared to be able to articulate. We've just said the Apostles' Creed. There's so much content in that. Why do we believe it? Well, it's because we've experienced Jesus. He's come to us in some way or through people. We understand it personally now, and that's what we need to be able to share. As Chuck Swindoll put it, <clears throat> the skeptic may, not deny your doc may deny your doctrine or attack your church, but he cannot honestly ignore the fact that your life has been changed. The Apostle Paul, echoing these kinds of thoughts in Colossians 4, says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then this key phrase, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to you ought to answer each person. 
To help us with that, I want to share a simple five-point template with you here today. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're open to doing this, is to take the inside panel of your bulletin or the back cover day where your sermon notes are, and maybe just list these things down. It'll help us, if you've never gone through this exercise, to maybe frame your story in a way that makes sense. The first part of that I'd suggest you consider is describe in your words your early spiritual experiences, whether you did have them or you didn't have them, your early church experiences, what it was like for you as a child in church, what it was like for you as a teenager or in your college days. Talk about what got you from where you were to where you are in that regard. So describe your early beliefs and attitudes and worldview and how you handled your relationships before. Secondly, what caused you to begin to consider Jesus? There's usually a cataclysmic event, sometimes a crisis, sometimes it's a person who just says something or does something. Who was that? Who is that? Who's in your story or what people are in your story? And thirdly, or fourthly, how and when did you actually invite Jesus into your life? How did it happen? Did you do it at a church altar or camp meeting? Were you quietly in the pew someplace? Was it when you were four years old with your parents? when you're saying your prayers one night, or maybe that's not yet happened. But whenever that was, it was real because you'll be able to remember that when you made that decision. That's part of your story. And last but not least, how has your life been different, better, since you've received Jesus? My goodness, that could go on for a long time, a really long time. But if we begin to frame our story in a way that it makes sense, is reasonable, considered, and it's about you, it's not about preaching, it's about you. It's going to be helpful. And I'll walk through my own template here in just a second to illustrate this. But, you know, I got a new testimony. I got to share this here today. Just the other day, a week ago Friday, my wife and I were on the exit ramp of I-90 uh, up in Rockford, and we're waiting for the traffic to clear and the cross street, and someone came and rear-ended us really hard and jarred us both, and we hit our heads pretty hard. Um, and we're able to get out of the car and go back and talk to the woman, and um, I asked, what, what, what happened? She, well, she was down looking at her phone, by the way. She was texting or looking at directions or something and just accelerated fully into us. Thankfully, the testimony is we were spared. But as I was interacting with her outside waiting for the police to come, I heard her talking to maybe her husband or insurance agent saying, and he was asking her some questions. She said, oh, the woman says she's got whiplash. We never said that, of course. And then, she, and then the pause for a second. <laughs> and then the, the woman says, oh, they're old people. Like, well, I guess so. I guess we qualify being old people now. The testimony is God protect us. That could have turned out a lot worse. As hard as we were hit, no one in their car was hurt. And by God's grace, we've come through that. But that's an example. We've got those God moments. He somehow protected us. And as I said, if I've been having neck problems, I have my neck turned looking back, God might have actually fixed it through the accident. I'm not sure of that yet. But here's a little bit of my story. I'll use it as an illustration. It might be helpful as you frame your own story. Some of you may notice I grew up Catholic. So I was baptized in the Catholic Church, did my Holy Communion in the Catholic Church, I went through confirmation, and I grew up going to church every single Sunday. Went to Catholic grade school and high school, and you know what? It never really reached me. I wasn't really paying attention, not blaming the Catholic Church, I'm blaming me. I wasn't paying attention, I was too interested in many other things. It had no effect on me because my heart <clears throat> wasn't open to it. So then, early in my college career at NIU, I had stopped going to church because the only reason I went at home, to be honest with you, is my parents made me. It was, this is what we do. We go to church every Sunday, and we did, 52 weeks a year, even on vacation at that dude ranch. We found this Catholic church there in Little Wickenburg. 
which is kind of cool. I like that one. But it didn't have any effect on me. But first year in college, I remember walking to classes about a mile from our dorms over to the classroom buildings, and I ran into an acquaintance of mine from high school I didn't even know was on that campus. And we started talking about what we're doing. And, and I said, yeah, I'm a business major. And, this, and she said, well, I'm, I'm a special ed major. And talked about that. And we continued our conversation. I walked away from that conversation. I said, wow, that's amazing. Why would somebody, why that takes a really nice, kind person to devote their life to helping children that are struggling. It just, it just began to speak to me. And she didn't preach a sermon to me that day, but she may as well have hit me over the head with a hammer. I said, what, what, what am I doing? I'm going to get a business degree and go into business so I can make a lot of money. And here's this young woman devoting her life to helping children. That was a beginning point. A few months later, God took me through a week-long experience with himself, with himself where he did really shake me to the core and made me want to start my life over again because I looked back at the 18 years of my life and I had done very little good. I had done very little good for others. I just lived for myself. I was just your regular kid. And he began to convict me of that. And I said to God, I want to start my life over and do it right. And I want to love people. God helped me to do that. And suddenly the power of the Holy Spirit came in that place and helped me begin to move away and move in that direction. A short time after that, I ran across another a Christian woman at this time and shared my story, that story. I said, I feel like I've been born again. I don't even know what it meant. And she said, well, have you ever asked Jesus to come into your heart? And I said, actually, no. And she said, would you like to do that now? And I said, yes. And so we prayed there that evening uh, down in Tecate, Mexico, where we were at the time. It's so vivid in my mind. And the very next morning, as I just began to share the simple story I'm sharing right now with people in that place, people started asking me to pray for them. They were pouring out their life stories to me. Why? Because I was telling them mine, honestly. Mostly the bad, and then some of the good. And people were asking me to pray for them to be healed. It's the story that opened up the conversations. And ultimately, God has blessed my life in tremendous ways since then. So that's three minutes of me sharing those five points of my testimony. Each of us has a story to tell. Maybe it's a blessing that happened in your life in a certain way. Maybe it's just one of those two or two or three of those points. But let's be ready. Let's be prepared, as Peter says, to share the reason for the hope. The reason I have hope is because Jesus didn't give up on me when I didn't care about him when I had no interest in being a Christ follower, when I had no interest in even really even going to church except I had to. But he didn't give up on me. That first year after I was saved in that dramatic way, 10 of my best friends, acquaintances, equally derelict as I was probably, all gave their hearts to Jesus because they looked at the old me and they looked at the new one and said, something happened here. We don't know what happened, but, and I was able to explain the story to them and 10 of them gave their hearts to Jesus. Several of them are in full-time ministry missionaries and pastors now. Nothing about me. It's about what Jesus did, a simple story. Your story is equally powerful. Mark Mittlenberg and Lee Strobel, years back, wrote a book on evangelism called Contagious Christianity, and he gave three things. True evangelism is fueled by love, caring about people. It flows out of authenticity, being real, not saying, I'm a Christian, I'm way up here, and you're down there. It's saying, hey, I've struggled through life. I've messed up. And thirdly, it's built on real relationships. 
Richard Halverson put it so well. I love virtually everything he has written. He says, evangelism is not salesmanship. It's not urging people, pressing them, coercing them, overwhelming them, or subduing them. Evangelism is telling a message. Evangelism is reporting good news. My friends, one bit of good news is that none of us are responsible for carrying the gospel message to everyone in the world. But all of us are responsible for sharing the good news that we know in our personal world, in our spheres of influence. We are called to be the light of this dark and darkening world in our schools, in our workplaces, in our civic circles, on the ball fields. We are called to do that. And friends, it's time. It's high time that we step up as the torchbearers of the message of a loving God who cares about people that are lost to him. Carl Henry once said, and I close with this, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word that we're living fulfillment of today. We thank you for the preparation of millions of saints over the ages that have preserved the gospel and communicated it faithfully in written form and verbal form that it's reached us even now in our lives. And God, I pray that you'll move upon our hearts to be the best prepared we've ever been to be able to share the message of hope and of help and of healing in the worlds you've positioned us in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.